Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Stephen. I'm Anoush. And I'm Alva. On this week's New States from podcast, we discuss the politics of the nurses' pay freeze, and you ask us, will the Conservatives come to regret picking Sean Bailey as their mayoral candidate in London? So the Labour Party has kicked off its campaign for the local elections on the issue of the nurses' pay freeze, which Alva, you, in today's morning call, was kind of the the theme of it was, you know, that that campaign and its pitfalls. So what's kind of, you know, just talk us through, like, what do you see as the the upsides and the downsides of that choice? Yeah, so as you say, Keir Starmer and other national leaders and candidates from the Labour Party launched their election campaign ahead of all of the elections taking place on the 6th of May this morning with a virtual launch, obviously. And the top line is... A vote for Labour is a vote to support our nurses, which people have probably already heard on the news and and should, if all goes well for Labour, people should be hearing that line in news bulletins throughout the day. And as you say, in Morning Call, I kind of ran through the advantages of that line as well as the potential disadvantages. So at first glance, it's a line that really plays to Labour's strengths because we've talked about the row over... I still don't know how to call it, whether we call it an uplift or an increase or or, or a freeze or a cut, because the 1% rise in nurses' pay, like that's still contentious as to whether that will amount to, in real terms, rise or freeze or cut, because it will depend on inflation. But that change, you know, Labour has been campaigning on very successfully this week, and there's a huge amount of public opposition to that change with the vast majority of people, including the vast majority of conservative voters, thinking that that pay increase isn't enough. So actually, whether you think it's a rise or not, most people don't think that it's enough money for nurses and all of the other hospital staff affected by that pay change. So it's a salient issue to launch Labour's election campaign with with the obvious caveat that some commented or pointed out today that like how you vote in local elections won't affect nurses pay one way or another although I actually don't think that that's very important. Ignoring the fact that it's not important it's also not true is it right categorically if the day after the local elections the conservatives have lost more than 200 council seats nurses are getting their pay rise right they just it's just like <laughs> It's yeah, exactly. True. And also, I, su- I suppose that this is the thing that I, I really have no problem with there being a little bit of politics <laughs> being involved in the way a political party is 
framing its campaign message. I think that that's totally fine. I think even if people think about it and realize that the issue of nurses pay, which is a central government Westminster decision, even if they think about how they're not electing MPs, so they that issue isn't literally in contention. It's still kind of, as you say, broadly it is because it's a vote of confidence one way or or, or the other in the conservatives and it's also about the broader message of you know whether whether you want to vote for a party that makes those kinds of cuts or you don't so yeah I think that that bit isn't really very important but basically the thing that I tried to think about a bit in morning call which it really continues a theme that we touched on last week was that the, the problem is that clearly this is an easy battleground for Labour because already the Conservatives seem really likely to U-turn on this issue. But the problem is that they can win the individual battle on nurses' pay, which in a sense they've already won because basically no one disagrees with them. And even lots of Conservative MPs and voters already disagree with the government on this. Labour has basically already won that argument, but it's sort of struggling to win the bigger argument. You can win a win a debate about whether nurses' pay should be increased or not, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're winning the broader argument about, namely, Rishi Sunak's budget, whether there should be so many cuts in it, whether there should be tax rises, and then more broadly, whether this is an appropriate way to manage an economic recovery and I suppose the problem is then like you win this issue but then once the government u-turns on it you're back to square one and then the sort of spending versus austerity argument becomes a kind of moving target and I think well basically my conclusion in today's morning call is that there's really very little that Labour can do about that because if you try to have that big broader argument as part of your you know your, your election campaign launch for local and scottish and welsh parliamentary elections it doesn't necessarily have cut through it makes sense to go with the politically salient issue but it just encapsulates how difficult it is for labor to win the bigger picture argument basically yeah i think you made a really good point in the morning call email about that, how there is a difference between campaigning on an individual economic point and making the wider point about how the recovery should be shaped and how different you want the recovery to be than Rishi Sunak's vision. And the danger of going on one issue such as nurses pay, which is obviously a popular issue, is that when or if the government does U-turn in the middle of the campaign, you then have to come up with a new slogan. You know, okay, you can claim it as a win, but you can you can only really claim it as a win for one day. Then people want to know what else you're going to be bringing to the table if they vote for you. So, and also as we've discussed before, once an issue has been U-turned on, people generally are happy if it's U-turned to the position that that was the most popular position or the one that they they wanted the government to move to. Don't really mind how it came about. Obviously numerous U-turns start to make a government look weak and they start to suggest cracks in its unity and things like that. So there are other problems with with U-turning. But on a specific issue, I don't think it's necessarily going to be the most electorally helpful thing for them to be able to claim it as a win. I also think that I understand the need to have a populist sort of central policy point and that we've thought that they've been putting out too many policies that may have confused their message slightly. But I do think there is an element of sort of basic pitch politics about this vote Labour for a nurse's pay rise for our NHS heroes. 
of course, people have been completely bowled over by by how strong our health service workers have been throughout this pandemic. And, and there is a huge amount of gratitude. But people are also not stupid. You know, they can smell inauthenticity. They can smell when people are being called heroes, when they're not being treated as heroes. Clap for carers didn't come back for a reason because people realised that it wasn't necessarily the most helpful way of showing showing gratitude. And I, I think that even when you speak to people who work in the health service, who have experienced these issues firsthand, they're quite cynical. You know, they are very quick to sniff out when someone is trying to use them for political purposes. They've not been overwhelmingly flattering about the Labour Party and my time reporting on this pandemic for, you know, for the past year. We're nearly coming up to the anniversary of lockdown now. There is an element, uh, I think, of feeling about how the Labour Party may have been a bit opportunistic at points, sniffing sort of which <laughs> which way the breeze is blowing and then deciding to go hard on an issue that sort of their own industry bodies have been campaigning on for a very long time. So I'd, I wouldn't be surprised if this isn't the sort of slam dunk that the Labour Party appear to think that it is, despite the polling showing positivity for, for the idea and despite how much goodwill there is towards our health workers in the country at the moment and how important the health service is in terms of voters' priorities. I think where they could land a blow is is if it does divide the Conservative Party even more. And that's always been the case with these issues that it appears the government may have to row back on or change in the end, you know, with free school meals and the universal credit, £20 a week uplift. If it exposes or exacerbates cracks in the Conservative Party, and in the cabinet too, then, you know, that's probably where they're going to make their most political capital. And I think Keir Starmer did that well in PMQs when he read out quotes from Boris Johnson's own MPs, you know, basically saying, it's not me saying it, it's it's your own MPs saying it. I think that's where they can make political hay. But I think they should be a little bit careful. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, as I think I said in the last episode, the thing I have struggled with this week is my, my assumption was that this was the kind of thing that actually the would be fairly popular because broadly people agree with the oh, it's got to be paid for tough choices all of that shtick and then therefore people go well one percent still a rise right now that hasn't happened but of course one always wants to hold on to your original bad take and my original bad take is still that i just think that broadly people kind of have bought into that idea a bit and so they kind of say oh yeah they should be given more but i'm not convinced they're that Fussed by it. Equally, of course, I do think it makes sense as a, a local economic because for the yeah, for as I said, like, the basic reason, right? If you want this cut, because I mean, it is in part a result of the fact that the health service is getting a smaller slice of the pie than it expected before the pandemic. If you want this cut not to happen, then the most effective way to show that is to vote for the opposition parties in a midterm local election. I think it does underline well exactly for the reasons you lay out and why the competent stuff is so important for them to land because. I think we have a government which is so ideological that despite the fact that, and I do think the intriguing thing is right, all of the announced cuts have got resistance, right? Four billion of sort of amorphous bad stuff's going to happen in the spending review. But the two specific cuts, right, the diffid cut is being resisted in Parliament and the nurses' pay freeze is being resisted in the country. So either we have a government which at its core is sufficiently ideological then it will actually try and implement this stuff anyway, or pretty much all of that four billion pound will be retreated from. In which case, you just end up in that sort of weird zone for an opposition party where you're effective because you can go look at all these U-turns we forced, but no one is voting for you unless, you know, because essentially like the government keeps diffusing your attack lines. I don't know which one it will be, but I do think it. the really striking thing this week is that 
thus far, none of the cuts in that budget have survived being made tangible without attracting a level of resistance that simply was not the case in 2010-11. As you say, we we spoke about this a bit on the on I think the most recent episode of the podcast, but then we kept talking about it after we'd finished recording. And now those thoughts are kind of informing this conversation because um I think it was after we recorded earlier in the week that I was saying to both of you that I basically just don't understand why Labour haven't described the Rishi Sunak budget as an austerity budget, why they aren't being explicit about that framing in a way that covers all of the cuts and tax rises and sort of deals with the economic argument head on. And what you both suggested was that it's because ultimately austerity doesn't mean very much to people who are not that politically engaged, that even after years of arguments about austerity in the Cameron Osborne era, it still didn't really have much cut through as a word. So I suppose the the problem is that if you look at Keir Starmer's speech and the speeches of, of other people at this launch today, it, it is about austerity because it isn't really just about nurses' pay, but it sort of it describes the Conservative Party as a party that's cutting nurses' pay cutting spending on the NHS and raising taxes on families. So it is a kind of broader argument against the wider direction of the Conservative Party, but it's just the challenge is that the whole thing doesn't cut through. It's the top line about nurses' pay, which has its advantages and then its limits as as an argument, which which we were talking about. But then I think there's another aspect to this and why it's difficult for Labour, which is that Angela Rayner, who's obviously the deputy leader and one of Labour's, I think, most effective communicators, did the broadcast round on this this morning. And she's now currently trending on Twitter. And I know Twitter isn't real life, but she has been criticised by quite a lot of people who seem frustrated that she was condemning on behalf of the Labour Party the paltry nature of this pay increase for nurses but she couldn't say at what level Labour would actually set it because there's the level that the NHS had previously budgeted for and that was there's the pay increase that was already in the plan before the pandemic but then there's also what the Royal College of Nurses has been been arguing for which I think is 12.5% which is much higher and on one of the breakfast TV programs, she was sort of being challenged, you know, why can't Labour just commit to to a 5% pay increase or whatever? And I think I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, whether it's a problem that Labour can't say, you know, it can say what it's against, but it can't pin down where it is on this. And people then again feel that Labour is being a little bit slippery and a bit critical because it it isn't coming up with its own definite policy alternative. That's a really, really hard question because I, I, like Stephen, was a little bit caught between knowing whether the public is going to buy some of those arguments about, well, you know, we do have to have a limit on spending. We do have to claw back some of the billions that we've spent on the pandemic response. We had this polling by Redfield and Wilton that showed us that actually the majority of Labour voters do think that current spending is unsustainable. So I did think perhaps there's going to be this nuanced view where people support certain funding increases, but but by the Conservative argument that actually you've got to start clawing things back or not. And I think that's at the heart of the question of whether that kind of performance by Angela Rayner and the wider point of 
where does the Labour Party draw the line with trying to look economically competent, you know, in inverted commas, but also trying to appear generous to the people that it knows are the people who capture the public's imagination the most at the moment? Will that balancing act work? And I I don't think it will, because, you know, after the financial crisis and when you had Ed Miliband leading the Labour Party, they had that sort of halfway house, didn't they, where they opposed some cuts, but they accepted some others. And it really didn't work for them. And it did make them sound slippery. And I remember going around, you know, following certain shadow ministers on the campaign trail, whether for local elections or, or for the general election. And I just didn't think that those kind of messages landed particularly well. Labour is still, it still needs to prove its economic competence. And it was trying to do that last time round and that didn't work. So I don't see why the same trick will work again. Having said that, we are in a completely different type of crisis, a different kind of political climate. So I'm sure they know more than I do. Maybe they know something I don't know, but I doubt that that is the path to the most votes. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And our question is, given the government's vaccine bounce in the polls nationally, will the Conservative Party regret picking Sean Bailey as their London mayoral candidate? So, I mean, there are so many things this could refer to from this week alone, but <laughs> I guess this is probably a reference to him taking the, some would say, politically unorthodox choice to incorporate the disappearance of Sarah Everard into his campaigning at a point when the whole thing is very much still a, a moving issue and a yeah both in it is emotionally moving but it is also an ongoing one the conservative government has sort of refused to roam behind him it's obviously attracted a lot of criticism from within his party and across politics but typifies his kind of I mean not so much gaff prone right it's, it's pretty much all gaff but yeah Anoush, what do, do you think they will come to regret the selection of Sean Bailey? Yes, I think they will. I think they already do. I mean, the question puts it in the context of the vaccine rollout. And I assume that's referring to the fact that because the government is is being, is enjoying a sort of poll bounce because of the very successful vaccine rollout so far, perhaps people in the Conservative Party are thinking, well, London, you know, needn't have been seen as such a lost cause. We shouldn't have put our faith in this candidate who's proved himself to be sort of terrible from day one 
I'm not sure if that would necessarily be the reason why they'd regret having them as a candidate, but he has, you know, shown himself to be particularly politically inept this week. What with that tweet trying to politicise the disappearance of Sarah Everard and then refusing to apologise for it as well. So, yes, I suppose they will regret it, not least because some of the polling like you've written about, Stephen, before in London is more ambiguous than you think about the Conservative Party's standing in the capital. You know, it, it isn't a lost cause for them with a good candidate they could have been running a better campaign and that could have coincided with this bounce that they're enjoying at the moment which you know should they should still be riding high on it by the may elections unless something happens so yes i suppose that there's going to be a, a great deal of regret about that sean bailey has said so many despicable things in the past i i, I wondered whether they would try and use him sort of in a in a trumpian way to kind of say well you know he speaks his mind he he says taboo things that, you know, maybe people believe, but they don't say out loud and, and they try and use him in, in that sense. It's it's telling that they haven't tried to do that because there are some ministers like Robert Jenrick and Liz Truss who have, you know, sort of dipped their toe in the culture wars and, and tried to use those kind of issues to to get voters to, to row in behind them and sort of curry favour within the party. And they haven't done this with him, probably because they know it, it wouldn't work with an electorate like the one in London, as well as maybe it... It potentially could in other types of types of campaigns, but I just think it shows that there's an utter lack of support for him within the party as well. And probably the sooner that this election is over and that they can choose a different candidate, the better for the for the Tories. So I have a thought that I think because the two of you, I think, have a bit more depth and substance to your thoughts on the London mayoral race than I do. I think you both might completely think this is crazy, but I, it's just making me think about the, I suppose, the costs of the purge of One Nation Conservatives and more Remainer Conservatives before the 2019 general election when all of that stuff around No Deal was happening. So the purge of people like Amber Rudd and Rory Stewart and so on. And basically that definitive break with those kinds of people, that there are still a few One Nation Conservatives still in the Conservative Party but that lots of those kind of Tory Remainer types didn't stand again at the last election, didn't get the whip restored and aren't really included within Boris Johnson's Conservative Party because Rory Stewart left Parliament and he did stand as an independent and that campaign completely ran out of steam. But you just think, I mean, (laughs) I feel like this is one of my best good podcast thoughts, but you just sort of wonder if he had been able to stay in that race and he had eventually had his membership of the Conservative Party restored, then the Conservatives would have someone basically in that race. Or, you know, even if he was sort of informally linked to the Conservatives, because he is a former Conservative, then the Conservatives would still have someone in that race who has has sort of stood the test of time much better than I think lots of people thought that he would when he launched that campaign. And I mean, there were some hideous moments to that campaign too. I mean, the gaffes haven't all been from Sean Bailey. I mean, there was that time he was in the East End somewhere. He met this group of Irish band members, like Irish musicians who were black And as he was going around doing his campaign, you know, he would get selfies with them and record videos, normally very cheerful. He looked terrified around these guys and did a subsequent interview 
referred to them as gang members, which they definitely weren't. They're Irish musicians. That campaign had its pretty bad moments too. But in some respects, Rory Stewart did call it right on coronavirus. All of those calls were completely correct. And when he outlined his thinking on how you should approach a crisis, again, he was really on the money. And it just sort of, as I think the questioner hints at, with the vaccine bounce, you know, it's not impossible that a Conservative could win in London, even though it's not looking at all likely this time. And I just think that 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 definitive break with that type of Conservative, who was completely alienated, hasn't served Boris Johnson entirely well. That's my kind of mad point. I don't think it's that mad. I remember a contact at City Hall saying that the mood was incredibly sour when Rory Stewart announced his his candidacy. So it strikes me that there is more to fear from Tories like that than a candidate like Sean Bailey. Yeah, and and as people who who perhaps actually, I hope no one does remember this because I think this is a level of obsessive attention to what I write than people who pay this much attention should probably just hand themselves into the police. But as I wrote in one of my um, my sort of post-mortems of, of, of the many, many things I get wrong, is after the last mayor election, I put £10, which is the most I ever bet on anything, on Justine Greening to be the next mayor of London. Not because I thought it was likely, but because her odds were 200 to 1. And I thought the, the 90% chance that I would not get my £10 back were, were obviously worth the I, we are close to the the circumstances in which a better candidate could have won i think right mm. we've had two polls to show us two very different pictures in wales one showing a surge towards the incumbent government in wales one showing a surge towards the incumbent government in the united kingdom i the welsh conservatives however it look let real talk the welsh conservatives if they are going up are not going up because the median welsh voter has suddenly decided they love andrew rt davis the Conservatives are up in the polls in Scotland, and I'm sorry, I do not think that that is because of a quite arcane political scandal that you have to be following in quite close detail. And the Conservatives are up in England. Mm-hmm. I kind of think Occam's razor suggests that that is because the vaccine bounce is going well. And I think you can see a situation where a slightly more favourable environment for the Conservatives and, you know, and a candidate like Justine Greening, who you know, would not have repelled the average Londoner, and the fact that, you know, Sadiq's own record in office is not, you know, littered with achievements. You can see the circumstances where where things could have gone better. But also, right, there are other elections in London happening at the same time, not least to the London Assembly. And if I were a Conservative Assembly member, I would at this point be thinking there is a non-trivial chance that I will lose my seat in an election I otherwise should not have done. So, yeah, I think I think then they will regret it. I think you are right that one of the problems is lots of the plausible candidates have been kicked out. But their big problem was they selected so early at a time when Sadiq looked formidable. And one of the reasons why why lots of people, you know, it's not just obviously Justine Greening was the person I thought, you know, did think was undervalued at 200 to 1. Justine Greening, Ed Vasey, there are loads and loads of people who at, at the very least would have cleared the central demand I think Londoners have, which isn't the candidate not appear to hate the city that they are running to be in charge of. And I think it does show that you should always, always assume in politics that you can win. That's why Bill Clinton became president, right? Because a bunch of Democrats looked at the post-Gulf War polling and went, nah, no point. And it does show, right? I mean, if they if they'd selected in January of 2020, they would have got a better candidate than Sean Bailey. The reason why Sean Bailey is there is because they gave up on the race 
looks like Sadiq Khan will be re-elected emphatically, I think in large part because Sean Bailey is a terrible candidate. But at the least, right, the vaccine mans ought to mean and they get 35% of the vote if they had a better candidate, which would be quite a huge difference if you are an AM who is otherwise going to lose their seat this May. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our political correspondent, Alva Ray, our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan. It's been produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil by the Devil and is licensed in the Creative Commons. If you would like to ask a question on the podcast, please do go to www.youaskus.co.uk. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at StephenKB. You can follow me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. And you can follow me on Twitter at Pronounced Alpha.